My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Some of you will scoff at this, but it's true. You have to be reasonably well-educated to become a member of parliament in the House of Commons. If you're a sitting MP, you've almost certainly graduated from a post-secondary institution, and you may even have another degree on top of that. If you've had this job for any length of time and you've bothered to do it, you've been exposed to files on everything from housing to healthcare to foreign policy. And somewhere along the way, even if it was only way back in grade 10 history class, you learned about the Second World War. Even if it was just as simple as allied, good, Axis, Nazis, bad. All of which brings us to the events of last week. We have here in the chamber today Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian world veteran from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians. Surely, out of the hundreds of MPs that were sitting in the House as the now former speaker introduced a guest who would soon be infamous, there were one or two MPs who had paid attention in history class or just knew a little bit about the Second World War, who were listening and thinking to themselves, hmm, wait, thought against the Russians, but that, wouldn't that mean that? But by then, the House was on its feet applauding and an international incident was born. Today, we'll examine that incident and who actually bears responsibility for it. But we'll also examine the fallout from it, why the Liberals and Justin Trudeau will not receive the benefit of any doubt in this affair, or indeed in any other. And we'll discuss what happens when a government gets tired and sloppy, and the public starts to see them that way. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. David Mosscrop is an author, podcaster, writer, and political commentator, including on this show when something wild happens in Ottawa, which here we are again, David. Yeah, this time I feel there are own goals and there are goals that you give up that are something beyond an own goal because it's not quite an own goal. It's just a bad, maybe it's a bad beat. Hmm. And the liberals have suffered a bad beat right now because ultimately I don't think this scandal is their fault, but they're going to probably end up wearing a good chunk of it. Well, before we start in on who's at fault and everybody's differing interpretation of events uh, for their own reasons, why don't you just tell us the facts of what happened in the House of Commons last week uh, when the Ukrainian president was visiting? So here are the basics. So President Zelensky visits Canada. He 
participates in a joint address in the House of Commons, and he gives a speech. Prior to the speech, the Speaker of the House of Commons, uh, Anthony Rota, uh, introduces a veteran and describes him as a veteran of the Second World War who fought for Ukraine against Russia, calls him a Ukrainian hero and a Canadian hero, and everybody gives him the, the veteran a standing ovation. No one clues in at the time, as far as we can tell, that the man fought for the Nazis against the Allies, which is what is implied by a Ukrainian veteran who fought against the Russians in the Second World War. And what exactly do we know specifically about the man that the speaker honored uh, beyond what you just said? Well, the the fundamental, basic, important, top-line takeaway is he was a man who fought with a Nazi SS division, the, uh, the Ukrainian Waffen-SS, uh, 14th Grenadiers, in 1943, and who came to Canada subsequently after the war. Incidentally, many from the division did. And he is a member, a constituent, I should say, in the speaker, the former speaker now, Anthony Rota's writing. He's 98 years old. And Poland, because now this is a biographical fact of note, uh, the Polish education minister is taking steps to have him extradited uh, for his participation in the war. So this has now officially become, I believe, they call it an international incident? This is an international and historical incident of some considerable concern. Yeah, this is not just a mistake in, in the House of Commons in Canada. Right. It is now bound up with world history, with the history of the Second World War, with uh, geopolitics in Europe, with the Russian-Ukraine war, because the Russians were very quick to pick up on this mm -hmm. and to use it to fuel uh, accusations of Ukrainian Nazism, which is going to do a great disservice to uh, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian war effort. So this is more than a small mistake or an omission or a, a, a failure to vet. It's now a, a full-blown international incident. We're going to talk about how the mistake happened and what comes after it in a sec. But first, because it's an interesting aside and because you mentioned all the historical context here, how does uh, someone who fought with the Nazis end up uh, eventually just living comfortably in Canada? So Canada has been uh, full of uh, thousands of Nazis for, for decades now, including, according to the 1980s Deschenes Commission that looked into this, at least 90 to 100 war criminals. We welcomed them in the aftermath of the Second World War. The folks who came from the the division in which Hunka served came by cabinet-level direction in, in 1950. And the history is deep, immense, complicated. But essentially, the while, for instance, the, the Nuremberg trials found the SS as an organization to be a criminal organization to have committed war crimes. Canada didn't consider the individuals war criminals who were parts of the division, unless they'd been proven to be war criminals. And so we welcomed them, quite a few of them. Huh. And then in, in the 1980s with the Deschenes Commission in the Mulroney years, which anybody can go look up, you can go find the PDFs. There are several hundred pages that are classified, but plenty of it isn't. We, we find that, uh, as I mentioned, uh, a number of those individuals, Nazis in general, were found to be war criminals. But the particular division was never found guilty of war crimes. That's not to say they aren't guilty. And this is an important distinction that's been lost in the coverage. 
They were never found guilty. It's not to say they aren't. And there's plenty of criticism of the Duchesne Commission uh, and its capacity and limits at the time and whether or not it did sufficient research or didn't travel to Europe, for instance, huh. uh, to discuss the, the people who had landed in this country. That is really fascinating historical context. And I think a lot of people saw the headline of like, whoops, uh, Nazi honored at the House of Commons and uh, are just learning about this now. Yeah, it's stunning. And I mean, I, this is something, as someone who spends time thinking about Canadian history that I was aware of, but the particular details eluded me. David uh, Pugilese from The Ottawa Citizen is a fascinating source on this. He's done much more research and he's written several pieces on this and his pieces are illustrative of just how complicated the history is, but just how much is missed in the mainstream, which is quite a bit. And we too, our national shame, have not paid enough attention to this. And it really says something that members of parliament in the gallery listened to that introduction, stood up and gave an ovation to the man without doing the math. Right. That if you were a Ukrainian volunteer fighting the Russians in 1943, you're not on some secret third side. <laughs> As much as people want to try to complicate this, there were two sides. There was the Nazi side, the Axis side, and there was the Ally side. And if you were with if fighting the Russians, you were fighting for the Nazis. Right. I read this in one of David Pujolini's pieces. He had said that the Duchesne report in the 80s found that some of the Ukrainians who had fought in that division had participated in the Holocaust and in other war crimes. <sighs> right? So it wasn't as if this division was just simply Ukrainians who were fighting for nothing but Ukrainian independence from Russia and they had nothing to do with the Nazis. And we can ask ourselves a simple question of, well, if you've joined to fight up with the Nazis, whatever your end goal is, you are supporting the Nazi war effort mm -hmm. because the Nazis created the division to try to resist and shore up against the, the rise in, in ally troops who who we're complicating the German war effort. So you are directly serving the Nazi cause by supporting the Nazi war effort. Right. It's, you know, you, you made a choice. Leaving behind the history for now, though I am sure um, there will be a lot more to learn about in the coming days because this isn't going away. Like, how does this happen in the first place? So this is where things go from political to partisan and get sort of silly. Uh, and we can talk about that more later when we talk about who's blaming whom for what precisely. But the way the invitation would have worked and the way that the speaker, the former speaker himself has suggested was he, of his own initiative, invited this individual. Now for a joint address... The speaker has a tranche of, of invitations uh, that he is in charge of. Yes. So it's not the prime minister. It's not the prime minister's office. It's not the privy council. It's not the MPs. It's the speaker. And what's the purpose of those invitations? Like, what are they for? Well, you, you bring in honored guests. Mm. You, it's a way of, of stacking the, the gallery with notable individuals. It's the speaker's job to host notable people and to welcome them and to recognize them as a normal part of the House of Commons. Right. So, the, you know, the protocol office does its thing. The parliamentary security, the, the protective security, really only checks IDs and puts you through the scanner to make sure you are who you're saying you are and you're not carrying any weapons. They're not doing background checks. They don't look up who you fought for in the Second World War. Exactly. 
But on the speaker's side, evidently, nobody did any vetting whatsoever or checking. And no one checked to see what who precisely who this veteran was. So it ultimately boils down to a failure of due diligence on the part of the speaker's office. Hmm. No one saw this name, know who this person was, or, or said when they invited him, uh, let's maybe check what it means to have fought for Ukraine against Russia in 1943. No one ever checked that. Hmm. There was just a failure of checking at every point. But I will say this very, this very important point. People who say that, well, the government ought to be checking and vetting anyone who comes anywhere near the House of Commons, especially if a foreign head of state is here, is challenging the right of the Speaker and the House of Commons to govern its own affairs, hmm. which for hundreds of years has been a point of contention right. <laughs> among those who want independence of the House from the government, right? And which we think is good. The government doesn't vet who gets to go in the Commons. The Commons belongs to the people. It belongs to the parliamentarians. It doesn't belong to the government. The government's a separate thing. So this was a failure of the Commons, uh, particularly of the Speaker, not of the government. Once it became clear um, who this was and, and who he had fought for and that this was, in fact, going to become a huge thing, um, how did the government handle it? And again, I know that there technically is a distinction between the government and the House, but this was laid at the government's feet. Yeah, so the government faced blame, I think, both from the opposition conservatives who were rather cynically trying to blame the government for this and from people who just assumed or associated it with the government because, well, it's the House of Commons and the government runs the the parliament, right? And so, therefore, it's their fault. Mm -hmm. Because typically, most Canadians don't really pay close attention to the the fine workings of parliament or even the general divisions of branches of government. So it's an easy mistake for people to make if they don't know how this thing works. But the government initially said, well, it's appalling. No, they didn't rush to defend it. They they very quickly realized it was problematic. But they did say, Minister Gould, the House leader of the Liberals in particular, we shouldn't politicize this. Hmm. Well, good luck. It was going to be politicized, and it should be politicized. But what it shouldn't have become was a stupid exercise in partisan sniping, which is what it actually became. And then the government, again, Minister Gould said uh, in the House, let's strike it from this from the record. Let's take the speech out of the record because it's offensive and so on and so forth. And the response to that was, no, we don't memory whole things in this country. Yeah. And so the government fumbled... I think both attempts initially to deal with this. And then finally, they got on the Anthony Rhoda must resign train on Tuesday. That a lot of people had been on for a couple of days already. Yeah, I think I raised it myself on Saturday, maybe even Sunday. And by Monday, it was pretty clear what was going to happen. And by Tuesday, everyone agreed, including government ministers. And by the time government ministers are saying it, they might have even said it Monday, some of them. Uh, but by the time that's happened, that's the end of it because you can't really maintain the authority and trust that's required to govern the proceedings of the House if you know you have the parliamentarians saying, we don't trust you anymore. <laughs> the, there was the most awkward thing on Monday. The speaker had to preside over a question period, which was in no small part about him. 
Right. And his failure. So watching that, it was very clear he couldn't stay. So now the government is trying to defend itself against conservatives and others who are blaming it for the whole debacle. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. How did the opposition uh, react to it? And on one hand, you know, uh, it's something that probably everybody uh, should have condemned immediately. On the other hand, um, like, let's be honest, it's an opportunity for them. Well, that's exactly it. They were opportunistic. They they, uh, obviously filtered this through a partisan lens and thought, okay, this is a chance for us to blame Justin Trudeau for this big international embarrassment and national embarrassment. And so they're laying it at his feet, saying, well, it's Justin Trudeau's fault. He needs to apologize for this. It's his fault it happened. How could it happen under his watch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The speaker himself said this has nothing to do with the government. The former speaker, I should say. I keep things move fast in this world. Yes. Then Anthony Rota himself said this had nothing to do with the government. This was me in my office. And the government says Justin Trudeau didn't meet with this veteran, uh, Yaroslav Hanka. Uh, He didn't invite him. He had nothing to do with him whatsoever, nor did President Zelensky of Ukraine. It was very much the speaker full stop. And that makes sense. It's the speaker's constituent. And there are moments where I think Hanlon's razor explains this, right? You, we shouldn't attribute malice to that which could be explained by incompetence. Yeah. There's a good chunk of me that thinks someone just never made the connection of what it meant. They, they could see the parallel here. Like, oh, this constituent is Ukrainian. He fought in the Second World War. The Ukrainian president's here. That's great. That's a good fit. And no one ever did the math right. or asked the next question because they just had no conception of what that meant. And here we are now with this massively hurtful and embarrassing international incident. Like I say, it's, um, it's really funny to imagine the one or two people there that were figuring it out in real time. Well, even even Anthony Rhoda, I mean, I, again, we, this is wild speculation, but if you watch the remarks he delivers, you can see him for a moment kind of pause and make a face as if he's doing the math on the fly. Because <laughs> he's not a stupid man. It might have occurred to him in that moment. Oops. Oops, indeed. Obviously, this is a really stupid mistake to have happened, however it happened. And as you say, you know, it likely has absolutely nothing to do with the prime minister's office or the higher levels of the liberal government. But what I'm interested in here is what it might say about where this government is at right now and what people are thinking about them as the sort of government that would just slip up and allow this kind of dumb thing to happen. And I think this is a critical point. This government is tired. Its staff are tired. It's been bleeding staff for years. Its best days are evidently behind it. It is prone to serious gaffes and mistakes and being out of touch. 
People are frustrated with it. They're turning to the conservatives as the answer. They are like a boxer in the late round of the fight up against the ropes in the seconds before the ref calls it. Hmm. And so it makes a lot of sense that they might have been at fault here. And the conservatives know that, and they're going to weaponize that for as long as they possibly can. And it will probably work with a significant number of of Canadians who are primed and ready to blame this government for every last thing and to expect the worst of them. Uh, And that's tough. But you know what? Uh, Incumbency has its advantages and it has its disadvantages too, as cynical and sad as that often is. At some point, people stop giving you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And if you think back to 2015, 2016, and even into 2017, Justin Trudeau seemed infallible and untouchable. And then at some point, the veneer wears off and that changes. And governments age, right? They get tired. The people who run them get tired. The people who are part of them leave. The staffers get younger, less experienced. You lose institutional memory. Your mistakes add up. Your scandals add up. People start to remember things they don't like. They start to blame you for everything that's gone wrong. And the longer time goes on, the longer it's likely that something goes wrong. We've gone through a pandemic and an affordability crisis. The pandemic is still with us. The affordability crisis is still with us. And people are tired and upset. And they're not going to blame the opposition for that. They're going to blame the people who are in power. And so you're going to wear that. And it's the conventional wisdom in this country is that governments defeat themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's why. And this government is ultimately going to defeat itself. Its clock's going to tick down to zero. And in the meantime, it's going to get stuck with every single last little scandal that pops up, whether it's responsible or not. And the Tories know this, and they're going to make the the liberals deal with it right until the end. And it's looking like more and more likely that end is going to be sooner rather than later. What does that perception do to the government's attempt to handle more critical files. Like, uh, you know, right now, I mean, obviously foreign interference and extrajudicial killings, Mm -hmm. allegedly, from from India are on the table here when the public perception of the government is that they can just, whoops, mess up and invite a Nazi into the House of Commons. What does that do to their ability to handle those files seriously? Well, I think it reflects a real skepticism that they're able to deal with those files that is entirely fair for the reasons that we just covered. And it diminishes trust in their capacity. Mm -hmm. But if they can deliver some wins, then that could shift, right? I mean, there's a lot of time between now and 2025, if we're talking election. A lot can change. Governments have come back. From from poor performance and been reelected, the British Columbia government of Christy Clark did it in 2017. It was a lock that Adrian Dix and the NDP were going to win. The headline of the province newspaper was "This man could kick a dog and still win," <laughs> showing Adrian Dix. And then Christy Clark won. I mean, it can be done. And if the government starts delivering on housing and people feel the relief. It could have a real shot, although that's unlikely because it's going to take a long time to get lower house prices if we ever get them. If they can deliver on more affordable groceries, ditto. But again, ditto. So they could, in theory, come back from this. But if they take some big swings on housing, on grocery affordability, and so on, pharmacare, Mm -hmm. and they don't connect, well, then they strike out. I know you won't mind a baseball 
analogy. Please. Uh, they, they're swinging for the fences here with every pitch. <laughs> and they're either going to connect and put one up into the 400s or they're going to strike out. And they're a tired batter. So the money's on strikeout, but you never know. Sometimes you connect. And there's not that many innings left in the game, so you can't play small ball and hit a bunch of singles and hope it adds up. That's right. There's no small ball anymore. It's, it's, all, it's all swinging for the fences. Last question, because uh, you've said 2025 for the next election. You also said uh, sooner rather than later a couple minutes ago. Uh, there was briefly talk. Um, yesterday, about the fallout from this perhaps leading to a confidence vote for this government. How would that happen? If there's a real sense that the liberals are vulnerable and can't govern, uh, opposition members could decide that they wanted to try to trigger an election. They could express non-confidence in the government. It's not super, super easy. They can either defeat the government on, on something that's billed to be a confidence motion, or they could use some of their limited time in the House to bring their own confidence motion. But the question is, does the NDP want to do that because you'd need the NDP to to be behind it. At the moment, I would say probably not for a couple of reasons. They're probably not super duper election ready. They may not be in a in the position the polls where they want to be either, although that could they may be. But more to the point, the pharmacare bill is due in this session of parliament. Right. And this is a marquee promise from the NDP, a marquee demand. And they would have a very hard time explaining to people why they defeated the government that was offering the pharmacare bill that they've been fighting for for years. Mm -hmm. Unless the bill is utterly unacceptable, in which case you could imagine them saying, well, no, we wanted a Cadillac and you gave us a jalopy. And so we, we had to pull the plug. But I think they're going to wait and see because there's some important stuff on the docket in Parliament. So I think it's unlikely the government falls over this uh, anytime soon. That said, it's certainly an option that parliamentarians have in their back pocket if it gets that bad. Oh, boy. Um, David, thank you for this, as always. Oh, my pleasure. David Mosscrop, who you can find at davidmosscrop.substack.com. And at your favorite bookstore, his book is called Too Dumb for Democracy. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Talk to us with feedback on this or any other episode. We love to hear from listeners. You can hit us up on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can shoot us an email at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can leave us a voicemail by calling 416-935-5935. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.